sermon podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning service to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore who Jesus is, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into God's Word and what He has to teach us today. So listen in as we jump into what God has in store. Well, good morning. I'm glad y'all came out for this final week of a Heaven series. Um, as you came in this morning, if you weren't, if you were running a little bit behind, you missed this. So I'll just go ahead and give you, um, a, you may want to stay over until the first five minutes of the next service because you missed something incredibly special if you weren't here. Um, it's, it's like opening up the wardrobe into my childhood because we did a hymn medley at the beginning of this service, like old school Southern gospel hymns. Yes. Well, here, no, 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 don't clap. Here's the deal. I told the team this morning, y'all, if hymns had sounded like that when I was a kid, we wouldn't have stopped singing them. Let's just be honest, because that was incredible, and I love it. I'm so thrilled to get to kind of close out this series today that we've been looking at, the idea of heaven. If you've missed the messages along the way, go back and take a chance to listen to those. Pastor Jeff Simmons, our lead pastor, serves in the Franklin campus over all the Rolling Hills campuses. He led out with the first of the series like he always does, and then I was up for a message that's all about how do we get to heaven? Like, what's the actual underlying current theme and question that we're asking? We're going to revisit that a little bit today, and then last week, Kelly Mentor fantastic Bible scholar and teacher was here in this place teaching the idea of like what's heaven going to look like and where all of our preconceived notions about it and what are the things that we heard growing up and what are the things that have been influenced in our life that may or may not be present in the book. And, And so that's actually the theme that we're sticking with today with the idea of like when will heaven come? And all of our ideas about heaven, like so many of our ideas about other things in this world, are not only influenced by what Scripture says, but they're influenced by what other people have said about Scripture. And all the things that we heard, we have to go back and proof test and look at actual Bible verses to see where do they actually come from. And the songs that we sing and the words that we say and the expectations that we have, where do they find themselves rooted in Scripture? And we have to be an open-handed people who are approaching this saying to ourselves, okay, I don't want to believe it just because I was told it. I don't want to believe it just because my grandmama said it. I don't want to believe it just because somebody wrote a book about it and sold it. I want to believe it because it's actually in the words. And we have to be a humble enough people to look at the things that we've thought, the things that we believed, and even the things that we've taught and shared and examine them to see, are they actually in the words? There is a famous movie. It's still pop culture hit. It's called The Prince's Bride you heard it and you've seen it, so many fantastic core theological truths come from that movie. There's this character in it named Bettini, and he continues to say over and over and over again the word inconceivable. And Inigo Montoya looks at him at one point in the movie and says, you keep saying that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And there's a lot of words that we say when it comes to ideas of heaven. There's a lot of vocabulary words that are out there, particularly in our messianic expectation of when heaven might come and when the Lord Jesus might return. And some of those words don't actually mean what we think that they mean. So we asked the question this morning, when will heaven come? And it's in your notes so you can follow along as you go. This whole idea, it's a question that's looking for theological information 
Like, we want to know vocabulary words. We want to know actual, like, we want to know what Scripture says. Like, we want to know what is the order of operations when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ. But then we also want to land on the spectrum of everyday application. Like, how does anything that we learn and how does anything that we read and how does anything that we study and how does anything that we confirm is actually, how does it apply to our life? And what am I supposed to do differently when I leave this place and go to the restaurant for lunch because of what I've experienced? Because of what I've seen, there's an idea of theological information being enough, and it's not. There's an idea of everyday application being enough, and it's not. We need both, and we need them to come together in a way that makes us more like Jesus. So a question that's looking for theological information and everyday application is going to come together for us today in a couple of different answers. They're all in your notes. The first one's this. In a real way, when did heaven, when, when is heaven got, it already did. Wait a minute, what? Does that mean that we missed it? Not necessarily. We talked about this during week one of the messages. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4 and you start with verse 13, this is literally Jesus inaugurating his ministry and says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill. Like everything about Christ's life was a fulfillment of old school messianic expectations. What did the prophet say about when the Messiah would come? There was as much Jewish expectation, there was as much Jewish interpretation, there was as much Old Testament prophecy about the first coming of Christ as there was about the second coming of Christ. And we're living in a day where we're waiting on the return of Jesus, but he already came once. And so we land on the idea that heaven is already here. It's the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's an important piece of the puzzle. It says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's the picture of salvation coming, flipping on the light switch, knowing what the truth says. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. What did he say? Repent. That means turn from your sins. Like, like quit living life according to your agenda and your ideas and your prerogatives, but turn away from that. Why? Because the kingdom of what? Heaven has come near. It already came. And if we really want to understand this text, if we really want to understand the, 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 the truths that Jesus said and the, the, the truths from what Paul wrote, like if we want to understand New Testament, we've got to go back to its original context and its original audience and understand that this was a storytelling people. They weren't a news brief people giving you facts. There was no ticker tape across the bottom of the screen giving you little tidbits of things that had happened or things that were expected. It was literally a narrative society. And so when Jesus told stories, he was giving people truths. And we we can look at those stories and we can look at those images and we can put on a lens of culture and put on a lens of what that audience understood and we can gain meaning. Jesus told lots of stories and so many of them are about the coming kingdom of heaven. And so if we want to know what it's like and how to get there and when it's going to come, we can look to the stories that he told in Matthew chapter 13. You don't have to turn your Bibles there. We're not even going to put the words on the screen, but he, he told a story about wheat and tares. Why did he tell a story about wheat and tares? And you're like, well, I don't even know. what it, It's a weed. Wheat and weeds. Why did he tell a story about wheat and weeds? Because it was an agricultural society where everybody farmed something. It wasn't box gardens like what we have in our backyard that are super Etsy trendy. It was a literal way of life. And, and so he told agricultural references for a people who understood agricultural references, but he wasn't telling them how to be better farmers. He was telling them how to be believers. 
So he tells this story about, about wheat and tares, and he's like, hey, here, this, the kingdom of heaven, this is what it's like. It's like a man who went out and sowed really good seed in his field. So that's great. That makes a whole lot of sense. They would have understood, okay, the kingdom of heaven is like somebody who went out and sowed good seed in his field. But then he goes, while everybody was sleeping, an enemy went out and sowed bad seeds into the same field. And so when it came time for those seeds to produce, what had happened was weeds and wheat both appeared. And so the master's servants came to him like, hey, should we go and pluck up all the weeds? And the master's like, no, hold up. Like if you pluck up all the weeds, you're probably going to pluck up some of the good grain with it. So just wait, let them all grow up together. And then at the harvest time, when we're really supposed to gather the wheat, we can pull up both and then separate them in the barn. And Jesus tells a couple of other stories, but then he goes back to explain. Matthew chapter 13 is great because a lot of the parables don't get a, a bottom line explanation. But for this one, Jesus does. And he says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 36, he, he leaves the crowd and he goes into the house and his disciples come to him. And they're like, um, by the way, can you explain to us what you meant by the parable of the weeds in the field? And so Jesus says, the one who sowed the good seeds, it's the son of man. It's the name that Jesus used to reference himself more than any other name. It was a picture of what the Old Testament said, that the Son of Man was going to come. It was a declaration that he was the Messiah. When the Son of Man, the Messiah, comes, he's going to sow good seeds in the field. The field, let's just go ahead and alleviate all concerns and all confusion. It's the world. The good seeds are the people of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, the people that trust in faith. The, the, the weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. We're living in a time where both are allowed to grow up, and in our day, and in our vantage points, and in our conversations, and in our expectations, what we look at on the news, what we read in books, we can see a picture of both. The kingdom of heaven that's alive in the world where believers gather together in the name of Jesus and sing the songs that we just sang, giving glory and praise and honor to the king of kings, and the picture of what heaven is going to be like, but then we go out into the world and we're in agony because we look at the devastation and the destruction and the sin and the, the confusion and the absolute lostness of people who have no idea that there's a God in heaven who created them and loves them with an everlasting love and sent his only son to die in their place so that they might be forgiven of that sins and walk in complete and total freedom. We can see that there's both in the world. There's an enemy that's roaming around sowing weeds. But Jesus came. The kingdom of heaven is near. And when we live out of faith that doesn't center on the idea of heaven, but centers on the idea of Jesus, we'll understand heaven already came. That's when salvation arrives. The Jews in the Old Testament, the Jews in Jesus' day, they weren't looking for the kingdom of heaven. They were looking for a Messiah to rescue them from the dark kingdom of the world. And when Jesus hung on a cross and right before he died said, it is finished. He accomplished the complete and total work that God wanted him to do to eliminate sin. Heaven was fully here and we get to be a people of the book. We get to be a people of the truth to say, it's here. Jesus came. We use the expression on our staff team, this is actually when I learned it, A-O-T. It just means as of today. And during that season of life, we said A-O-T all the time. Nobody knew what was going to happen next. We're like, well, as of today, 
we're going to be open on Sunday. As of today, we're still going to have in-person services. As of today, the plan is to open kids' ministry. As of today, as of right now, as of this minute, but maybe not the next one because we don't know. As of today, it's not too late for us to see it. Heaven came. And as of right now, it's not too late to see it and to declare it and to have an experience in your life that marks you forever. Because of the sin in the world, we are all deserving of death and eternal separation from God Almighty. But because of his great mercy and his incredible gift, he offered us Jesus, his son, in our place. It's a theological term called substitutionary atonement. It meant that we deserve the punishment for our sin, but there was a substitute. Oh, when I was a kid, I loved a substitute teacher. And I do confess that I was the kid that would raise our hand and tell all those substitute lies, just straight up lies. <laughs> Saying things like, oh, this teacher lets us sit wherever we want. That was not true. Oh, this teacher lets us use our open books for the test. That was not, in fact, true. Oh, this teacher allows us to eat snacks. And that was not, in fact, true. And we get a substitute to literally stand in the place of us and all of that sin and every other wildly worse sin that I've ever committed and that you've ever committed. Romans chapter, well, all the chapters in Romans, it paints for us a picture that's all the way to the throne room of God where we can experience Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. There's a couple of verses that are in your notes and they're referenced on screens this morning. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he died on the cross and he came back to life, you will be saved. Then say you will go to heaven, although that's what we're concerned with and that's ultimately where it leads, but the idea and the expectation of what people so desperately needed was salvation. Salvation from the way that the world worked and the Roman Empire and the devastation of it, but then also salvation from the devastation that's caused by their own sin. That's what people needed. And so when we declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, he came back to life. That's the way to salvation. It says in verse 10, it's with your heart that you believe and you're justified, just as if you had never sinned. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith in him and you are, say verse 13 is even better. It says everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And to say that word, to write that sentence to a group of people who thought that only certain types of people could be saved, this matters. Who thought that only certain types of rule followers could be saved, this verse matters. It was a picture from the very beginning that the Lord was painting through his people that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ might be saved. There's one answer to that question, when will heaven come? It already did. And it's not too late today for you to be somebody who professes your faith in the Jesus, Lord, and Savior Christ who brought it. But then there's another answer. And it is the answer that I know a lot of people are looking for. It's the answer that's a little bit exciting. It's the answer that people want to have, like, I mean, I want to know more answers about this than other people know, just so that I can shock and awe them over dinner and they can feel that I'm smart. Like, it's the eschatology answer. It's the study of last things. It's the prophecy. It's the thing that tells us, oh, this is the order of operations. Because right since the beginning, and we'll get to a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples where they said, hey, when is all this going to happen? Mm, spoiler alert, Jesus told him that he didn't know. But eschatology is the study of last things. I brought my laser pointer. It's a good thing there's no cats in here. We could have a fun time. 
I don't want anybody to be, I'm not going to shine this in your eyes. You don't have to be. It's very dangerous if you do. I tell that to my children. But we've got these pictures of, of what, the, what the viewpoints are. And, and so there's a lot of vocabulary words that go along with this. The idea of eschatology is the study of last things. And people are very often preoccupied with what's going to happen at the end of all the things. And really they're preoccupied with it because there's a fear that goes along with it. Like, I know that there's death. I know that there's probably judgment. And I want to make sure that I'm on the good side of it and not the bad side of it when it happens. And there's a heightened sense of awareness. And there has been since the 1800s that the end might come quick. Every Let's just... Every single generation since the very beginning of Christendom have thought that they were the last one and living in the last days. If you sat down with Peter and any of the other apostles who launched the church, they didn't write a lot of things down in the first couple of decades. They didn't think that they need to. When they watched Jesus ascend back into heaven, they literally looked at their clocks and thought, well, he'll be back in a few minutes there's an episode of Daniel Tiger, and some of y'all watched that for good parenting advice when you were kids, and it is really solid. And the kids are freaked out because the parents are going somewhere, and there's a separation anxiety, and this is something that we said and sang to our children when they were, hey, grown-ups, come back. Like, Jesus is coming back. You can, you can mark it. Like, he's gonna get here. And the separation anxiety happens in children when there's a fear of whether or not the parents are gonna come back. The cool, calm, and collected, well-adjusted kids are okay because they realize that, hey, when mom goes to work, when mom and dad go on a date, some of you are like, date, what's that? I get it. They're going to come back. We've got these viewpoints of what this picture looks like, and for solid generations, there were only a couple, and then all of a sudden, we added a third and even a division into the fourth. There's this picture of premillennialism, and like, what does that look like? Oh, well, millennial kingdom, the, the reign of Christ, this thousand-year reign. Do we believe that that's actually coming? Premillennialism means that, hey, we're living in the expectation that one day there's going to be a millennial reign of Christ after the second coming, and it hasn't started just yet. There's a amillennialism, and it basically just says, hey, the millennial can happen anytime, and that the time frame itself, not even the thousand-year version of it, is not even that important. And then we got postmillennialism that says, yeah, the millennium's actually already happened. There you go, and the church is going to be gone after it happens. And then with those things, we've got a couple of different viewpoints. There's a dispensational, y'all can tune out for a minute if you don't care about any of this, and I'll bring you back whenever I talk about something different. This time order of like things being given in different dispensations or time periods, there's a view that goes along with the premillennialism, but then there's also a historical view of it, and some of these are wildly new to us, and then we've got vocabulary words that pop up, and we want to know what the scholars think, and we want to know what the pastor believes, and we want to know what's going to be true, like this word rapture, and where is it in the Bible? And what does it mean to believe that there's going to be a moment when God takes out Christians so that they don't have to endure things that are bad? And how does it tie into the second coming? And some of these viewpoints have the rapture and the second coming being separate events. And some of these viewpoints have the rapture and the second coming being one and the same. And some of them have no rapture at all. Like, what does it actually look like? And the church is going to remain in the second coming of Jesus Christ returning. And then we have this picture of a great tribulation, this seven-year period of just all-out persecution and difficulty like the world has never seen before. And what we want to know based on that is, are Christians going to have to endure it? And some of these viewpoints say that we're going to have to endure none of it, and some of them say we're going to have to endure half of it, and some of them say we're going to have to endure all of it. And so where do we land on the theological spectrum of what these beliefs are? And then we've got a picture of, oh, the actual 
thousand year reign? Like, is it just one of those figurative things that's not really real? Is there actually going to be a thousand years? And there's the dispensational premillennial view of Christianity that says, yes, there's going to be a thousand years. It's going to happen after the church is raptured and after the second coming or at the second coming of Jesus and tribulation's already over. And then we've got other viewpoints that say something wildly different. And then there's a picture and a question mark of modern Israel and all of our attention, at least for all of my lifetime. And I'm 40 million years old and I know that everybody's always been focused on the, the modern state of Israel and how that factors into all the pictures. And as soon as Israel became an actual modern nation again, oh, we must be getting closer. And now that there's a war going on in Gaza and people are invading all the things, oh, this is we're getting. I can tell you this, we're closer today than we were yesterday. But to be a believer in Jesus Christ that is putting all your eggs in the basket of Christ's return in your lifetime is, I'm going to look down when I say this because I don't want anybody to think I'm making eye contact with them, um, speculative and erroneous. And it has been for lots of, well, it, we know this for sure. It's been for a lot of the generations who came before us. And a lot of the generations who are so preoccupied with this, they forgot to focus on the thing that we're absolutely supposed to focus on. The fun thing about all of these viewpoints and where anybody lands on any of these spectrums is that the historical premillennial view of what's going to happen in the end times was the understanding of first century Christians. It's the oldest of the viewpoints. There was a picture of post-millennialism, like, oh, this has already happened and we don't really know what's going to go next. That happened around AD 300 and then AD 400, we get this picture of amillennialism. It does continue to be accepted today. This one is widely still accepted by lots of different Christian viewpoints. This one, not so much. This one over here, which is the one that influenced the theology of most of our Western Protestant denominations, the one that wildly helped us understand this word rapture, that brought that into our vocabulary, Friends, it didn't come up until 1860. It's a fairly new viewpoint, and it continues to increase in popularity, mostly because of book sales and movies like Left Behind. And there are people out there who would take those movies and those books to the grave in terms of theology and would argue against this word if it disagreed. We want to be people of the book. Some of these words don't mean what we think they mean, and they don't matter as much as people say that they matter. The bottom line of any of the eschatological expectations and the vocabulary words that people want to make themselves feel smart with is this. Every single one of these, there are wildly different views and they all land believers in Jesus Christ in the exact same place. There's a slide that comes along with that in your notes. Oh, it's okay. It'll make sense in just a moment. Ah, there we go. That was like one of those pictures at the mall in the 1980s. Y'all don't remember them, many of you, but you used to have to stare at them until the image came out. There are wildly different views. Some of them more biblical than others. Every single one of them, regardless of the timeline, lands believers in Jesus Christ in the exact same place. If you go in your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
It says, brothers and sisters, in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Paul is answering a question about what happens to the people who've already died. They're still waiting in the church. They're dispersed around the entire Roman Empire, listening and hanging on every word that Paul and the other apostles would send them about how to be encouraged in their faith. And they're asking big theological questions like, what happened to my faith-filled mom who's gone? What happened to my faith-filled grandfather who's passed away? Like, where are they now? And so he writes to them, hey, I don't want you guys to be uninformed. I don't want you to be confused about those who sleep in death. And some of you, as recently as this year, are having that same question and that same concern for people that died. If you go back to the dark ages, if you go back to a time in life where they didn't have a Bible in their literal translation and they couldn't read and write and they were asking the papacy, they were asking the Catholic Church, say, what happens to even not my old people who died, but what happens to my baby who died? Like, what happened? Some of you have been there too. It says this, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. We grieve and we mourn and we are sad for the people that we lost and those that we miss. But it's not the same as those in the world who have no hope. It says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. There's a resurrection for us too. It says, according to the Lord's word in verse 15, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And then it says in verse 18 something it's going to say again real soon. And if it says it twice, it really means it. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is a text that is often used to talk about the rapture of the church, people being called out of this life. And then if you go back to the book of Matthew, there's these verses that talk about, hey, hey, in one minute, there's going to be one person lying in the bed who's gone, one person who's still there. There's going to be one lady doing the thing that you're supposed to do with grain because I don't understand agriculture over here, and she's going to be gone, and the other lady that's over here doing the thing that you're supposed to do with grain because of agriculture over here, she's going to be left behind. And that's where we get that whole theology of like, whoop, somebody's going to vanish, and their clothes are probably going to be really neatly folded where they were. Yo, I don't know why all of our theology about heaven and the rapture of the church has us naked, but somehow or another, the Bible didn't say it, but I mean, we'll just go with it. Like, that's what all of the perfect pictures have been. Sky Jethani asserts in his talk about rapture, his talk about end times, this is not a rapture text. It's a resurrection text. And we ought to be far more excited about that This idea of rapture wasn't populated until the 1860s. It's not present in these passages of Scripture. Revelation doesn't talk about it. And the text and the language for where it's concerned, that's not what they're talking about either. Because if you go back to those texts in the book of Matthew that talk about, oh, this guy's here and this guy's gone, this lady's here, this guy's gone, what do they come after? They come after a reference to the flood. Jesus says, oh yeah, remember in the days of Noah? Some people were taken out. Those are the ones who drowned. The ones who were left behind, Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives, and a whole mess of animals, those were the ones that are spared. So for us to flip that theology and say, oh, the good person is the one who was taken out, the believer is the one who's gone, and the mm -mm are left behind, it's an 
opposite of what Jesus was trying to communicate in that moment. This text doesn't talk about whether the church is taken out. It talks about believers in Jesus Christ going first. And that is such a picture. Like there was an, like any time we mentioned this morning when Monica was talking about the Revelation song that we were singing, like if you go into the throne room of a king, there was a certain way to enter. Where there was also a certain way to respond whenever a king would come into your community. When there was ever going to be a king or a dignitary or somebody really important that came into town, there were loud trumpets to let people know that he was coming. Like, it wasn't something that was secret. It wasn't something that was like, oh, what happened? We're so confused. We don't know what's going on. No, it was an absolute announcement that everybody in the community would have known that the king is coming, and there would be loud trumpets and so much pomp and circumstance. And guess who would get to go first to greet the king at the front of the city gates? The dignitaries, the VIPs. So when Paul paints a picture of the second coming of Christ and says the dead in Christ rise first, they're the VIPs who get to go out and greet him when Jesus was riding on a donkey coming into town and the people shouted Hosanna and they waved palm branches like crazy. It was another picture of what it's gonna be like for us when the king comes. And so here's the deal. We're not concerned as a people about when we get taken out. We're concerned with when he comes back and what it means for us when he does. There's a third answer to this question, when will heaven come? And this is the one that matters the absolute most. Bottom line, nobody knows, but everyone can be ready. This is the everyday application, and it comes out of rich theological information. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, about that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Jesus said he didn't even know but only the Father. And then he says down in verse 44, so you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. There's a lot of anxiety that goes on around our salvation. Are we saved? Are we included? A lot of that anxiety is born out of the idea of somebody telling you that you're not. Somebody speaking over you that you're not included. The world reminding you on repeat that you're not good enough. The, the enemy whispering inside your ears that you don't measure up. And so there's a picture of what it means for us to be ready. And what it means for us to be ready is not what it means for us to be good. Anxiety and fear, they are the enemy of readiness. But love is the antidote to that fear. And so to know that we're loved, to know that the great God of this universe loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him isn't going to perish but will have everlasting life. No one knows when the end will come and your first clue to tune somebody out is when they tell you that they know because you realize right then and there, mm, you're a liar. Was that too strong? Yeah, you're a liar. I don't know what else to say to that. And people have. Theologians and Bible teachers and pastors and People have been convinced for lots of decades that they knew the moment. They even put it down and said it's going to happen this date. And when it didn't happen this date, they came up with some wild reason of why it didn't happen on that date. Jesus said nobody knows. But then he told us to be ready. Everyone can be ready and everyone can be confident. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says this, Since we belong to the day, here we are in the field. The harvest hasn't come 
There's weeds and there's tears. Since we belong to the day, let's, let's be sober, guys, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we're awake when he returns or whether we're dead in the grave when he returns, doesn't matter. Whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, what does he say again? Encourage one another and build up each other, just as in fact you guys are already doing. The picture of heaven is this, that God gave us a glimpse in his son Jesus, and then he calls us to be that glimpse for others. John chapter 14, the disciples are like, hey, we were kind of confused about all this. He's like, hey, he tells them, he's like, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Hey, believe also in me. And he's like, hey, my father's house has many rooms. The King James Version of Scripture did not do us a favor because it called us mansions. And we're all of a sudden talking about what neighborhood we're going to live in in heaven and how big my mansion is going to be versus how big your mansion is going to be. What it literally means is dwelling places. And what it's a picture of for that audience and what it should be a picture of for this audience is that we're not concerned with what house we get. We're concerned with what house we build for him to come and live inside. It's a picture of him dwelling on us. Y'all, when we focus on the place, what we miss is the fact that we're supposed to focus on his presence. I'm not worried about him taking me out. I'm worried about him coming back and finding me faithful right here. He's like, if I had not told you that, I, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back. Grown-ups come back, and they take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. And then this one named Thomas, he's like, hey, well, we don't, we don't really know where you're going, and so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip goes, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Get it together, Philip. Jesus came. We've seen the glimpse the question is not, will Jesus come again, or not, will heaven? There's a better question than that. It's, are those that I love ready when he does? That's the question that we want to answer, because what people are supposed to see when they look at us, what people are supposed to see when they experience us, is that same glimpse of a God who loves them enough to die for them. We come this morning to a table that's been prepared for us. And the best part about this communion moment is that when Jesus took this supper with his disciples, he told them to do it to remember him. And so when we do it, Paul proclaimed, as long as we do it, as often as we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the reason we proclaim the Lord's death is because it was done in our place. So this morning, I invite you to take the elements that you picked up when you came in carefully peel back the tab over that tiny little, gosh, really insignificant gluten-free wafer. And hold it in your hands. And recognize for just a minute that what you're holding on to is a picture of our belief system. Like, this is what we claim. 
this is the only truth that matters. And I'm a dirty, rotten, difficult to be around sinner. And Christ, out of God's perfect plan and his great love, died in my place. His body was broken so that mine wouldn't have to be. And when we go through trials, when we go through tribulation, maybe it's been a great tribulation in your life, or maybe we're still waiting on this pending great tribulation that we don't know what it's going to look like when it comes, and it's going to be bad. The Romans 8, chapter 8, 8, chapter 8, verse 18 tells us that, like, hey, anything in this life, it's incomparable to the glory that's in the next. So even the suffering that Jesus endured pales in comparison to the glory that he sits in now. So we remember that his sacrifice was made for us every time we eat this. Since the beginning, Scripture wrote that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's what we've been concerned with. That's what the Philippian jailer was concerned with in the book of Acts when he asked Paul and Silas, Hey, sir, what must I do to be saved? How can I be spared? How can I be included? Doesn't matter when Jesus comes, doesn't matter how he comes, doesn't matter what happens before he comes or after he comes. What I want to say is, how can I be ready when he does? Is repent of your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. This is blood that covers us. So carefully peel back that tab and take it today for the reminder that it is that Jesus loves you. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to wander around in wonder. Am I going to be included? Is he going to find me faithful? Do I get to go when he gets here? It's not because of how good you were. It's not because of the vocabulary words that you learned. It's not because of the belief. It's because of your faith in Christ and what he already did for us. So we take it and remember what it cost him to save us. Lord Jesus, we thank you today for the hope of heaven, for the glory that we have to look forward to, for the beauty that you are already in the process of bringing to the world. You've allowed us to see a glimpse of heaven, and it's one that we can't wait to fully be a part of. And yet, God, we long for more people to know so that they're ready to. Help us to be that witness. Help us to be that example. Help us to paint that picture of your great love so that the world can know that you sent a Savior for us. And it's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family who may benefit from it. And make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you want to learn more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app. Follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.